Ephesians 6, 14. All of the assigned uh, subjects in this conference are naturally closely related, and uh, there may be a tendency for each of us to drift into another brother's area. Uh, that uh, always becomes somewhat of a problem when we're confined this way, but that's good, I guess. We're going to try to stay within our designated topic, however. I'm going to try that, and if I get into your area, you can remind me. Ephesians 6.14 Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. You just heard about that. And having on the breastplate of righteousness. And I understand there's an article in front of the word righteousness, the righteousness. Let me say, first of all, that as all of us all know, the moment we're saved, the battle begins with the world, the flesh, and the devil. In this passage, Satan is the enemy or the adversary. Satan and all his demons. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, verse 12 says, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Schofield Margin says, world rulers of this darkness, against spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. We don't think of the wickedness in the heavenlies, do we? But that's where the battle's going on. We're seated in the heavenlies, and we are the subjects of Satan's attack as God's people and as his servants. The reason for Satan's attack is because of the believer's relationship to God. He doesn't just attack the believer. He is in a struggle with God himself who lives in each one of us by his spirit. And so the attacks are really against the Lord, aren't they? Most of us understand, I'm sure, that the phrase, the whole armor of God, is really one word in the original language. The word panoply. And uh, this panoply is one armor. It is interesting, uh, Brother Thurman, that when we were here three years ago, we had almost the same thing. I don't know, maybe the Lord wants uh, your people to hear that again. Uh, because I was one of the speakers and I spoke on, on uh, somewhat the same subject. And I mentioned the fact that the armor of God is one. We have the same uh, sort of a comparison in Galatians 5, where we read about the fruit of the Spirit. It's one fruit, 
nine aspects of one fruit. Here we have six aspects of the one armor, the panoply of God. In Romans 13, and you can keep your finger in Ephesians 6, we'll go back to it. Let's look at uh, Romans chapter 13, verses 12 to 14. Familiar verses to all of us. Where the Lord Jesus Christ is the personification of this panoply, this armor. Starting with verse 12. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. In our text in Ephesians, the word armor, of course, is used as a metaphor to describe the believer's defense against attack. The part of the armor which I'm going to speak about is the second part, the breastplate of righteousness. Now, as I understand it, the uh, breastplate was that part of the armor which protected the vital part of the warrior. The uh, lexicons and uh, dictionaries tell us that the armor was usually made out of cloth or leather, soft material that could be, you could put your arms into and fasten in the back, and it was covered with metal. Sometimes it was covered with precious metal, even gold and silver. But this metal on the breastplate protected the heart. It protected the vital organs of the body. This is the picture which the Apostle Paul is using here. May I say that it's evident that the warfare is not a physical warfare, but a spiritual one, and therefore our armament, our armor, must be spiritual. We are exhorted to put on this armor. And it's called the armor or the breastplate of righteousness. Now, as I understand the scriptures and the Pauline revelation, there are two kinds of righteousness. Imputed righteousness, which is the theme of the book of Romans, overall, and imparted righteousness. Imputed righteousness, I understand it, has to do with our standing, our position. 
On the other hand, imparted righteousness has to do with our faith and concerns sanctification. We read about man's righteousness in Scripture, Isaiah 64, 6, which I think can be applied to the human race in general. Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in God's sight. That's what the Scripture says about man's righteousness. And then, of course, Paul confirms it when he says there is none righteous, no, not one. On the other hand, the psalmist, in speaking about God's righteousness, says, Our God is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. God's righteousness is eternal. 2 Corinthians 9, 9. Uh, which may not be real familiar to all of us, but let's look at it. As it is written, and this is another Old Testament quotation from the psalm, He has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. God's righteousness is himself, is Christ himself, I should say. Jeremiah 23, 6, and it's interesting that Jeremiah, in his prophetic utterances, should speak about Christ. And in Jeremiah 23, 6, you want us to turn to it, but in that passage, Jeremiah speaks of Christ as the Lord, our righteousness. And of course, Paul corroborates it in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. When he says, for he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So, there are two kinds of righteousness. Now, God's righteousness, as we said, is either imputed or imparted. And I think that both are included in this breastplate of righteousness. Imputed righteousness which is a gift and which every true believer has. Imparted righteousness which some believers have and others do not. For it depends upon the measure of our yieldedness to the Holy Spirit's control. First of all, let us say something about imputed righteousness. Imputed means to put to the account of another. I guess all of us know that. Sometimes uh, in uh, preaching we fail to define our terms. And we have people in our audiences, at least I do in Denver, who just don't know what some of these terms mean. And I think it's very, very important to define your terms. I've learned that there are some who aren't really sure of what grace means. 
Many of us use these terms all the time, taking for granted that everybody knows it. But I spent 24 years teaching children, so I have realized that uh, a lot of grown-ups are uh, old in years, perhaps, and uh, old in body, but uh, they have still not learned some of the little simple basic things that we take for granted they already know. Anyway, let me say that imputed righteousness means to be put to the account of another, and it determines our righteousness. Now, it's difficult to understand imputed righteousness. When I was first saved as a boy only 15, I could understand how God could forgive my sins. I understood that. Because I remember many a time when my mother and father forgave their errant son when he was disobedient. I can understand that. But it's very difficult to understand imputed righteousness because we have no parallel in human experience here. There is no way that I could impute my righteousness in the first place I don't have any and in the second place how could I give it to another so this very very important doctrine is misunderstood and people naturally think that the way to be righteous is to act righteous and to live righteous and they fail to understand the gifts of righteousness, as Paul says in Romans 5.17. The gifts of righteousness. Every truly saved person has the gift of righteousness. They didn't buy it, they didn't earn it, and they didn't deserve it. And that's true of all of us. If we are truly born from above. This righteousness, imputed righteousness, is based upon the faithfulness of Christ. Romans 3.21, and let's turn there. I, whenever anybody asks me, what is the gospel of grace? I turn it to Romans 3.21 and 22. Here we have the definition of the gospel of grace. I, uh, you know, I love the whole book of Romans, and I know you do too. But I really can't find any other passage that so clearly states what the gospel of grace really is, as we have it here in Romans 3. Verse 21. But now, God's righteousness, there's no article in front of righteousness, so he's speaking of God's righteousness. I'm going to read it like this. But now, a favorite Pauline expression, by the way. But now, God's righteousness without or apart from law, no article. Not just talking about the Ten Commandments, he's talking about legalism. The merit system. But now, God's righteousness apart from law 
is manifested or revealed, being witnessed or attested by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness from God, which is through Jesus Christ's faithfulness. Now that's a little different from the King James, but I believe this is the correct rendering. It is based upon Jesus Christ's faithfulness. You see? Unto all and upon all them that believe. That's your faith and mine. The righteousness that is imputed to us is based upon Jesus Christ's faithfulness. In other words, his finished work, his death, burial, and resurrection. Upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Turn over to the fourth chapter, verse 25. Who was delivered for or on account of our offenses and was raised again on account of our justification. We sing in one of our songs, we sang it Sunday night, and I thought, boy, we got to change that some way. You know that great song, One Day? Rising he justified freely forever, it says. That really isn't correct. Christ was raised because we are justified by the death of Christ upon the cross and his shed blood. In Romans 6, or er, excuse me, John 16, 10. Let's turn there. In John 16, 10. Well, we have to read uh, just a little of the context. Here we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world today. Remember that these were the words of Christ on earth and they were given before Christ went back to glory. The Holy Spirit had not come as resident as yet. But he told about coming and what he was going to do in the world. And I think this is a passage of scripture which uh, we need to recognize in our ministry today. I think here we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit as far as the unsaved are concerned. I, uh, like Dr. Schaefer so much as you know, and uh, he majors on this in his book, True Evangelism. We are currently teaching a class DBI class in evangelism and mission. And I'm going to speak on this. I'm going to stress this important point. Let's look at it. And when he has come, speaking of the Holy Spirit now, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Not sins. Sin. One sin rejecting Christ, rejecting the remedy. 
of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father. And I, you know, I used to read that verse and I couldn't quite understand the wording here. And I, I was really in the fog about that. But I think I understand it better now. Of righteousness because I go to my Father. And I believe he was talking about his finished work. When he went to heaven, the work was completed. And he sat down at the right hand of God, presented the finished work to the Father. And this righteousness is based upon what Christ has done. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Now I hear preachers on the radio forever quoting this, these three verses and they say, of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. I think all of us recognize that this is not judgment to come at all. It's speaking of a past judgment. We all understand about the judgment in scripture and certainly this is the greatest judgment of all, the judgment of sin. Where did it take place? On the cross. And the Holy Spirit has come to enlighten the unsaved about these things. But my point is that this righteousness, imputed righteousness, is the gift of God. And it's based upon the work of Christ. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul gives his testimony, and I love this portion, starting with verse 3, verse 7, excuse me, verse 7, chapter 3, Philippians. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, whom I suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dumb, that I may gain Christ. Same word there, by the way. King James has win. That I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of law, no article, but that which is through Christ's faithfulness. The righteousness which is of God by faith. You see, we receive it by faith. Romans 3.22 Upon all them that believe. We just read that. We won't go back to it. Upon all them that believe. You see, this righteousness is received by faith. And Romans 4, 5, which all of us know, speaks about imputed righteousness, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now, it doesn't say that our faith is righteousness, of course. But our faith is counted for righteousness. 
put to our account, imputed, if you please. Same word. This righteousness, which is imputed to us as believers, determines our standing before God. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, Christ is our righteousness. And it's up to us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, we can't put on imputed righteousness, but we can put on imparted righteousness. We'll show you how. Imparted righteousness. Our second point here. As I said earlier, imparted righteousness concerns sanctification and the believer's state. Now, I believe that sanctification is like salvation in that there are three tenses to it. I remember as a very young Christian being raised in an Arminian background, and one of the problems that really troubled me as a young believer, I'd only been inside with a teenager, and I'd just been saved a short time. One of the problems that I was faced with was the fact that people said they were saved and they weren't living for the Lord. And I never understood how it would be possible for anybody to get up and say they were saved and living such shallow, uh, worldly lives. Now, that was hard for me as a young believer. And then, when we moved to Chicago and I started going to Moody Bible Institute, if I didn't learn anything else at Moody, I did learn about the three tenses of salvation. I learned other things, too. But let me say that that was a great help to me as a young Christian to see that men are saved from the penalty and guilt of sin, we are being saved from the power of sin, and someday we'll be saved from the presence of sin. Very basic and very simple, isn't it? But you know, a lot of folks don't know that. And when we look at the word sanctification, it has the same three tenses. We were set apart, that we were set apart before we were saved. We are being set apart, and someday we will be set apart. But we will be set apart unto God in the measure that we are yielded to the Holy Spirit's control. The question may be asked, how can a righteous life serve as a defense against Satan's attacks? Well, in trying to give you a simple answer, I believe that to manifest God's righteousness in my daily life, it is necessary to be victorious over sin. And like the song says, each victory helps us another to win. As we are victorious over sin, God by his grace gives us his grace and strength and power to overcome the next time we are tempted or tried or tested. 
And I believe the songwriter is right when he says, each victory will help us another victory to win. Now this is experiential and progressive sanctification. And as I said, it's dependent upon a yielded life. Ephesians 5.18, which we all know. Be not drunk with wine. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled or controlled by the Spirit. Mr. Weed tells me a lot there. There's a lot of strange teaching about the filling of the Spirit. It was my privilege when I was at Moody to have Dr. R.A. Torrey, dear godly man, teach the doctrine of the Holy Spirit for two terms. I have a number of Dr. Torrey's books. I don't agree with some of his teaching. He's a very godly man. But he was a very godly man. Dr. R.A. Torrey spoke about the filling of the Spirit as some kind of a second work of grace. Now, I don't think you could call him Pentecostal, but he was bordering on that, very close to it. Now, let me say that when I read Mr. Weiss' study in Ephesians, I thought that, that really helped me, where he said, to be filled, and he, he said, no, a man who is drunk with wine is, is under the control of the wine. And the Apostle Paul is making the analogy between a man controlled by wine and who doesn't know what he's saying and doing with one who is controlled by the Spirit. Now, of course, we agree with all of you, brethren, that uh, we are not controlled by the Spirit as they were on the day of Pentecost. Today, it's an attainment. It's something that we ought to desire to experience more and more in our lives. Be not controlled with wine, but be controlled by the Spirit. That, that word really helped me. I don't think that's a direct translation, of course, but you see the picture there. I believe that it requires a yielded life. I hardly need to call your attention to Romans 6, 11 to 13. Mr. Weiss helped me a great deal in this area also. And I somehow managed to get back to Romans 6 and not, maybe not on every message, but almost everyone, some way. For when I'm dealing with a Christian life and how to live for the Lord and how to be uh, in the place of God's appointment and blessing, I have to come back to Romans 6. And so do you. And if we are going to be experiencing God's imparted righteousness, which concerns our state, we will need to be yielded to the Holy Spirit and controlled by Him. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says the same thing. And in Romans 8, 4, 
remind us that when we are yielded to the Lord, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us who walk after the Spirit. Instruction in the scriptures is another requisite to experiencing imparted righteousness in our daily life. Second Timothy 16 and 17 All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for instruction in what? In righteousness. For instruction in righteousness. Ephesians 5.26 Speaking of the word again, says we are sanctified by the word. I believe that's what he's saying in Ephesians 5.26. Sanctified by the word of God. Set apart. In John 17.17 Sanctify them in the truth, Mr. Stam read that earlier. Thy word is truth. Set apart them. I know he was talking to the twelve, I recognize that. But certainly the truth applies to believers today too. We are also sanctified by the word. The truth, this. And Titus 2, 11 and 12, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Every once in a while I meet somebody who says, well, I'm saved now and I can live as I please. I immediately say there's someone who doesn't know anything about grace. For the grace of God teaches us how to live soberly, righteously, and godly. Our brother Floyd Baker just wrote a series for Amazing Grace, and he stressed this point. How important for us to allow the grace of God to teach us I always say that knowing what the Lord has done for us is the greatest incentive to live a godly life. Knowing the grace of God is an incentive to live spiritual lives, godly lives. And as we go from victory to victory, the breastplate of righteousness will protect us from satanic attacks. Sanctifying righteousness. We said it was experiential and progressive. It's also sanctifying righteousness. The product of the Holy Spirit in the life of a yielded saint. Let's look at our last scripture, 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all with open face 
beholding as in a glass or in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That is imparted righteousness. And it is manifest in the life of a yielded believer. Imputed righteousness is a gift. Imparted righteousness is something that depends upon us. Certainly it's the gift of God. But at the same time it depends upon our yieldedness, experiencing this imparted righteousness in our daily life. Thank God for the breastplate of righteousness, one of the six parts of the panoply of God.